This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts, while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to contentmultiplied.com today. That's contentmultiplied.com. Thanks, Myla, and uh, let's go into the show. You are listening to Impact Hustlers and I am your host, Michael Schaprat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself by joining the team of one or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Safia Qureshi, founder and CEO of Club Zero, which is a platform allowing restaurants, cafes and food delivery services to offer reusable packaging for foods and drinks. Customers can choose to receive their food in a reusable container and after use, the containers are either picked up at the customer's home or returned to one of Club Zero's partner locations. Safia initially developed the idea behind Club Zero at Studio Detail, hopefully I said that right, a design studio that she founded with Maxwell Mutanda. And we'll talk about her background as a product designer and more importantly, even architect. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. And uh, by now, uh, Club Zero is actually used across the US and the UK by companies like Just Eat, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Nestle, a bunch of big names, but also uh, smaller names across those uh, countries. And so far, uh, Club Zero has avoided about two, 2 million pieces of single-use plastic waste and is set for a massive impact on reducing single-use waste, uh, which is super exciting for me as somebody that's somehow addicted to delivery services, especially, and seeing the waste that I produce um, as a result of that. So, Safia, thank you so much for um, joining me today. It's been long overdue. It's a pleasure, Michael. Uh, we've known each other for so long. Um, I'm almost like, how have I not made it on here for for that amount of time? So, yes, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Sophia. Um, so let's start with your personal story. I'm always keen to understand what drives people to do what they do. And, um, you know, um, uh, yeah, maybe let's just ask that question. What drives you to do what you do? What's your story? Um, and how did you end up becoming an entrepreneur? 
So, uh, I mean, finding purpose is a really fundamental part of your, you know, your entire well-being. Um, and I think for me, I, from a very young age, decided that I needed to be um, producing things that had value to people and society that um, could be accessible by anybody. And so, funnily enough, I felt that that inner brief really matched up well with becoming an architect and having wonderful spaces, like physical, tangible places or things that people can experience and enjoy. Um, so from, for, from that perspective, I felt that the journey was about becoming an architect and understanding how to create well-being at scale. So this is looking at cities, this is looking at um, how do we organize people, how do we organize our lives to to be to be more effective and more sustainable and more more you know just enjoyable. So I became an architect, which I absolutely love. It's like it's my perspective on everything, I guess. It's how I view the world. And I got to a point where I realized that actually a lot of my my purpose was around building things that could be accessed by anybody. And architects uh, architects in this country are predominantly working either in residential because we have a housing crisis um, or they're doing the odd sort of mixed-use development projects. And actually, there's very few projects out there which are open or accessible to anybody anywhere. And so my inner brief wasn't being met and my purpose wasn't fully being met. And I felt... Um, if I wanted to, you know, take on the next chapter, I wanted to use my understanding and skills from from training as an architect to um, enhancing other other forms in uh, in society that required problem solving and that required that kind of level of um, high level of design thinking. And I set up a design studio off the back of that. So I kind of, you know, went from working from a corporate for a large corporate practice to setting up my own um, studio with one of my best friends, who's also an architect thinking, okay, well, let's, you know, let's answer really major briefs. You know, one of them was the single use plastics crisis, pretty big. And um, at that time, this is 2015. Um, and we used to be called cup club, as you might remember. Um, I founded this idea of, uh, you know, I, I saw this huge problem around single-use packaging and plastics, and um, I thought, why could we not have a more sustainable way in which we consume and also how we distribute food and beverage, right? So instead of us taking away any kind of single-use packaging, could it be reusable? Could it be returned to a network of drop points where that product isn't essentially serviced? So it's it's not a bin. It doesn't end up you know, on the other side of the planet, you know, in, in landfill or being incinerated, but it's brought back into the system, it's washed um, and then redistributed. So, you know, there there are modern uh, there are modern kind of reuse systems out there, but they never combine technology. So there's a lot of thinking around using technology to fuel and, and create the next, next kind of level of smart systems or return systems. Um, and that's that's how the ideation started. That's how Cup Club started in 2015. Um, you know, many years now down the line, it looks very different, and we're we're operating in you know mass markets, and we're operating across multiple products uh, product lines. But 
yeah, that was the that's the genesis of how it all evolved, I guess. Um, so fundamentally, it's about finding your purpose. I think you're answering your inner brief, which leads you to do what you do. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a bit more about how uh, your, your product range at the moment and how you're actually operating right now. Um, I'd love to zoom in on the architect's mindset that you mentioned. Uh, I mean, in startup land, there's definitely, I think, uh, most people are really aware of design thinking and things like that. Our designer's mindset is brought into the startup world and uh, loads of people have kind of adapted that. Um, how's the kind of architect's mindset different or how have you applied it to solving problems if you think about um, Club Zero, for example? So when you look at the design pyramid, architects sit at the top because typically we will we will have to do a lot of the other design disciplines within the scope of what we deliver. Um, so when you are organizing um, a space, you are organizing, let's say, um, graphic design because you have to introduce uh, wayfinding or communicate to somebody how do they find you, how do they get into that building, how do they navigate through and where do they go. And, you know, these are just common um, examples of uh, communications. Um, it's also product design. So you are... Think of buildings as an assembling of thousands, if not millions of products, right? You're specifying everything from physical materials that are required to make the building through to everything that goes inside the building. So product design is a really big part of what you work on. Then you've got, so I've covered communications, I've covered product Then you've also got service design because you are thinking about how do I ensure that this space in the context of where it sits, if it's a building, if it's a high story, if it's a whatever the, the use case is, <clears throat> who are who are the occupiers, who's coming, who are the users <laughs> and um, why would they come? So what would be the incentives? And what would be their UX? What would be their journey through the space? This is obviously a physical, tangible space. It's not digital. Um, and what value do you give to them that would mean that they might want to come multiple times or enjoy it and be feel fulfilled or, you know, have a sense of um, what we call in tech stickiness? <laughs> you know, obviously you want people to occupy your buildings and not be, you know, completely awful. So UX is a really key feature of, of that journey. So when you start to break down the design pyramid, architecture is at the top and all of these other smaller components actually build the base of the pyramid. So when, when I came to developing a new system for Uh, food and beverage distribution, so a new returnable packaging system, which is what Club Zero is. I have designed the also the product architect. So I built the architecture of the um, entire tech stack. So I figured out what are the key components of required of the technology side, the software side, simply by trying to understand like. What are the data flows? Who, which, what moves where? What needs to be captured where? What needs to be informing what as part of this entire 
tech stack. So that was like a, that, that I built as an architecture um, and then handed it over to somebody who I brought onto the team to actually go and, you know, properly, you know, also just um, challenge it because I'm still an architect. So I'm very self-aware. I'm not a technologist. So not by background uh, or, or, or an engineer. So, so I, I, I scoped that. And then of course, on the product side, I know so many amazing people who actually design wonderful, beautiful things. So we've we've brought on an amazing designer for to lead our packaging, um, who used to be the ex head of um, packaging at Burberry. Um, so have a lot of kind of you know high high experiential value behind you know tactility, holding things, and and to really think about our packaging product lines in more detail. And then on the communication side. Um, amazing, amazing designer, um, uh, digital designer, Mateus, who's now joined Apple to help us reimagine, like, what is the, you know, how do we, how do we help a customer find these drop point network points for returning the packaging as easily as possible? Um, and how do we visualize those? So I, again, because you're at the top of the design pyramid, you have essentially this awareness and understanding of the entire design structure and you, you, you know where people need to be sat to really deliver something phenomenal. And, you know, it's always about that team. It's always about that talent and it's always about those multiple disciplinary expert minds and bringing them together to deliver something that will all together in those pieces give you the best UX. And that's what architects do. We assemble a lot of complex teams to deliver very complex projects. So that's, I would say, how it's translated. Mm, and you really got to think in terms of systems and like the relationship between different things as well versus, let's say, designing a single item, right? I mean, uh, we'll get into Club Zero now. Obviously, you're designing single items, but it's much more than that, right? You're designing a whole system a new way of doing things, which has be ha, has to be designed from beginning to end, right? If you went out and just designed some reusable packaging and dumped it and put it in the shop uh, to, for people to buy, it would probably have failed or at least not have the impact that you can can make, right? So, is, is that a good summary? Yeah, it's a systems approach. Um, so we sit within the circular economy. Um, and this is like, I guess, nothing nothing new. We have had reuse systems for a very long time. They are also circular. We've, you know, um, seen seen them led by different brands, beer bottling companies. We've seen, you know, the, the large um, uh, beverage brands run their own uh, returnable bottling systems. But... Um, so, so the circular economy has existed for a very long time. I guess what we have done is we, we came to, to the space thinking, okay, these are great, but there is a very, very important need to have, um, a technology layer over this in the same way as you have, you know, we've always had cycles, we've always had rental bikes, but there's a difference between e-scooters and city bikes to, common rental bikes and we're the same there's a difference between club zero and your beer bottling systems that you see and the key fundamental thing is technology so you have the capacity to overlay tech and that takes the entire system approach into effect because 
it gives you a um, a view on on how you can integrate this at city scale, how you can bring um, more more exposure into understanding dynamics of how people move, where they need to buy, where they need to drop. It informs your city planning, actually. It also informs you how much people consume. And that's an important metric. And if you don't measure, you don't know. So we, you know, we have we have data in play that helps us improve our operational um, activities, but also for us to have sustainable credentials and be able to share them in the marketplace. So systems approach is um, adding adding this sort of circular circular system because you, you basically build the whole thing. You're moving things in this circular way, and you're responsible for ma- maintaining and managing this whole thing as opposed to just one key component and then saying, oh, well, we don't manage the rest of it, so we can distance ourselves from it. That actually takes a lot more ownership to design a system and implement the system as opposed to just one component. All right, uh, let's talk about the system that you have designed. So we haven't actually covered how Club Zero works beyond the brief introduction that I've made. So um, give us an introduction to how, how Club Zero works, what what is the whole process, and what's kind of the innovation that you brought to this space? Yeah, so let's start on the, um, I mean, your listeners are going to be mostly consumers. So let's start on the on the consumer side. So what we wanted to give consumers was the opportunity for them to um, go into any of the restaurants and cafes that they always do, their most favorite ones, and be given an option for uh, takeaway, but in reusable containers that they could return. Uh, conveniently to a wide network of drop points across the city. So that's fundamentally what our consumer offer is. It's find your favorite locations and be able to enjoy the same experience that you already have, but using higher quality reusable packaging, which um, you can either borrow for free on a on a payment on file model or you pay an upfront deposit and you are refunded that deposit back and you have 30 days to return these products. So ample time. So that way um, we see ourselves within the alternatives movement. So we've seen plant-based alternatives to meat. We've seen uh, plant-based alternatives to dairy. We are the alternative to single-use packaging, right? So we're giving consumers basically that optionality, which we believe is theirs. So that's the consumer offer. On the on the host side, which is essentially your brand, or your restaurant, or cafe, or food delivery company, and we, we sell B2B, um, you essentially have a mandate to transition your packaging from single use to something that's reusable. Um, that's why you would sign up with Club Zero or you're already buying sustainable packaging and you're paying for like something that's compostable. And so you're thinking this is a great alternative. It's, it's comparable in price. Why would I not offer this? And you would sign up to club zero to, for us to help you set up that system. So it's, um, it's working with those particular brands. Some of them are the likes of Nestle and they're very large brand levels and, and on the other opposite end, they are, you know, your typical locations that have anywhere between three onwards locations. So, you know, they, they've got good level of organization. 
Um, they're not necessarily your mom or pops because we, you know, we find that's a little bit more challenging for, for really small micro organizations is to have so much variety. Um, so we, we basically offer them certain volume of packaging on a daily or weekly basis and we collect it on a daily or weekly basis. We, it gets washed, we distribute it. Um, and then we provide them the drop point um, and technology to set up, and that's 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 them. That's it. Once once we have them set up, we we see that their uptake, um, for example, with our food delivery side, uh, where the first Club Zero is always the first to sell out across um, hosts that have signed up with us. So customers tend to offer or or want to have reusable or zero waste packaging over um, others if they are seeing that hosts are providing it. So they'll, they'll veer towards the one which is offering it to them. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic indicator for us. I think we, you know, we're just trying to make sure that consumers have the broadest options possible to them and make it as convenient as the other kind of takeaway. Amazing. Um, so you take care of, pretty much anything that could be inconvenient in the process, right? Like uh, you, the alternative to this would either you keep uh, producing single-use plastic and as a consumer, okay, it's great and convenient to chuck it in the bin, but uh, if you're an environmentally conscious consumer, it's definitely nothing you feel good about. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, the alternative would be bring your own uh, Tupperware box or something like that and then you have the hassle of cleaning it you take care of that whole process right so I just need to return the dirty box to where I picked it up or one of the other spots and that's all and you then take care of the logistics in the background um, which I assume can be quite complex right like basically managing all these different locations uh, returning washing and uh, redistributing I mean, we, we work with we work with trusted partners. So if if you're you know Club Zero itself is a uh, it's a brand and it's a product and it's a you know it's a design company it it tech company it's um it's not a logistics company it's not a washing company so we we personally do not do any of that we work with trusted partners in the marketplace that help us optimize. Um, so, so we build partnerships with the right folks. Now, just to give you an idea, our wash system is kitted out with, um, you know, some of the the best technology that you can see out there in the marketplace. It's it's worth like quarter of a million. It's it's a major investment, and it's specifically for plastics. And um, we we ensure that we have the most scalable, the best quality um, setup that there is available in the marketplace. And that enables us to, you know, have, have the best care or the user experience for consumers. So and also it's it's kind of super important for a lot of the brands that we work with because they have, you know, they have certain audits that they have to um, work within. So from from that angle, it's not like we try and do all of it. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we, of course proprietary wise in terms of our tech stack that we've built there's a lot going on we have besides the api platform and the dashboards that we are directly um, have developed and designed in-house we have three different apps which optimize our operations in in different ways and so we're constantly making sure that um 
those all those learnings come from the ground and we are we are implementing new releases in May for example for across um, quite a few of those so there's there's always work to be done but we are essentially very light in terms of physical operations got it um so in, in terms of the apps you talked about, it is obviously the consumer app where, you know, uh, that I have on my phone and you can see the locations and uh, basically uh, uh, sign up and, and use the system. I assume there's something like that for the locations or the partners you work with to manage what they have. And then the third one, what, what's that? Is that a operations. logistics focus one, operational one? Yeah. Operations. Yeah, it's it's for so wash our wash systems behind the scenes have our technology fitted into those um, because what we want um, is as much visibility. One thing which I should just mention: every every the, the main fundamental difference between <clears throat> single use packaging and reusable from where we have developed and um, created the IP around is. We have basically said that every every item of packaging should have its own unique ID. So by by us having the capability of scanning and having visibility of this, we we can track it better. We we just know where product is and we know how many times it's been used. Um, we know if a customer has returned it and it's been returned damaged. There's a lot more accountability around product, also counterfeiting and all of the you know other various reasons why you have unique identifiers. So, um, so we have technology that we build into the operations, and it helps us to get more visibility of of where product is at any given time. Hi, it's Michael here. I want to interrupt this episode briefly to make you aware of two exciting things that are going on here at Impact Hustlers. First of all, if you are a founder solving social and environmental problems and you're looking to connect to like-minded founders like yourself, you're looking to learn from some of the most experienced entrepreneurs, experts, and investors in the world, and you want some support in actually fundraising for your startup, we've built the Impact Hustlers community. We are now about a hundred entrepreneurs and founders, and we're growing every month uh, with more founders from all over the world joining us. And we're really here to support each other. And our goal is to build the most supportive ecosystem for impact-driven founders. So if you're a founder, head to impacthustlers.com slash community to learn more. And if you're not a founder, but you want to work for impact-driven companies, we have also recently launched something really exciting for you. And that is the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious and talented individuals in the world that want to use their talent to make a difference in the world and work for some of the most innovative, impact-driven companies. If you're keen to join the Talent Collective, this is all free of charge, obviously. Uh, you can submit Submit your application to the Talent Collective on impacthustlers.com slash jobs. And what will happen as a result is that companies will start approaching you through our Talent Collective and share job opportunities with you. We'll also share our weekly jobs update with you where you see relevant jobs in the field of impact, including from all the previous podcast guests. So you will actually uh, see opportunities from companies that have been covered here on the show and also companies that are members of our Impact Hustlers community. So go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for a job or if you're a founder and need some support, go to 
to impactpasswords.com slash community. Okay, let's get back to the episode now. Amazing. Um, and um, uh, let's talk briefly before we move into some lessons learned and some of the hard things about the, the journey and lessons learned uh, and lessons that you can share with people. Uh, let's uh, quickly cover uh, your business model as well, right? Because there's so many different actors involved. There's the locations, there's the consumers. Uh, who's, who's paying for this and how? Um, what are the benefits for your customers, basically, to justify paying for this? Sure. So we are a B2B, pure, um, pure enterprise sales. So for a, a consumer, this is a completely free setup. As long as they return the packaging, they don't, they don't pay for it. It's, you know, they get their deposit back. Um, and it's the same as um, any current business model for for any business, right? So they buy packaging. Instead, what they do with us is they kind of like it's, we're packaging as a service. We're leasing them packaging. So we're comparable in terms of pricing to compostable. So in terms of a a cost line, it's it's just a replacement cost line. It's <laughs> there's nothing more complex. Um, the number looks the same as what they currently buy. Um, the only difference in language is that they don't buy it, they rent it. Um, and we're, we're comparable to um, compostable and sustainable packaging. So we pretty much target those kind of players. We don't really we don't really look at um, uh, lower sort of inferior um, packaging format um, hosts because we know we cannot drive our product down to those commercials unless they buy at very high volumes. Um, so if they are very high volume and at low uh, pricing, that could work. But if they're low pricing at not very high volumes, we can't serve them. It doesn't make, doesn't make any commercial sense. So um, yeah, pure B2B um, and we mimic basically a packaging cost um, in a PNL. It's, it's nothing more than that. Um, do you see your partners, um, I assume initially most partners wouldn't get rid completely of single-use plastic, like being afraid, okay, now I need to sign up everybody to Club Zero before they can even take my dishes. How does their journey usually work um, for them? Would they kind of start introducing you and then gradually transition over? How, how does it work for them? What kind of partners do you mean? Um, so if if you talk to your uh, partners like the um, the cafes, the restaurants, the delivery services, I assume that you know because obviously uh, both them and their their customers need to be on board with this uh, to be able to return the packaging, etc. Uh, there is probably still a need to keep some uh, single use plastic, uh, single use containers uh, for those that are not using club zero right so how how do you see the uh the kind of journey of those customers and ideally i mean transitioning over to 100 percent club zero packaging or at least a large share of what they're giving up yeah it's exactly like the alternatives movement right so you you don't have major brands saying okay we're we've just done you know we've introduced the impossible burger and now all our burgers are going to be plant-based like <laughs> We will never have that. So just, you know, just to just to kind of, I guess, manage expectations is the marketplace will always exist for many different types of people. And we are not expecting a full conversion into one category. We're going to see 
many use cases where disposables are just, you know, required for various reasons. And um, we fall outside of the the optimal UX because, I don't know, someone is like in a mad hurry and will never go to that place ever again. That's a great example, right? So if you are, you know, a complete tourist and um, you're unlikely to want to come again or return or for whatever reasons your your user experience is, is an outlier to, to, to one that would, then you're not going to go in for a reusable. Um, and, and there are many other examples here. So I'm just kind of quickly staging one for you. But um, the main the main purpose for reuse is essentially to give optionality to a consumer and transition a brand towards zero waste. And most companies will want to start with being able to say that they are 20% or 30% uh, on that journey and then slow increments towards whatever their goals are. And their goals might be over five years, 10 years, two years, whatever those goals are. So we we do, of course, have to then support them on the, uh, the, the consumer adoption side, right? Because you could set everything up, but then you've got to create that visibility and understanding of what the product offer is and, and, and communicate that to the consumer side. So that activation does require collaboration. It does require a lot of um, a lot of training for their staff to 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 offer that product in store and to make sure that people are aware. Um, and yeah, that's that's a process. Is, is this your main channel of the acquisition of your end users, those that are actually consuming the food and drink? Uh, is that through your um, through your customers, through your partners, or uh, do you do do you follow another strategy as well to kind of spread the word about what you're doing? Well, there's loads. Uh, we do peer to peer um, advocacy. We're really trying to hone in on our advocacy piece at the moment. So, how do we? How do we engineer more ways in which people can refer? So um, whether that's referring peer to peer and giving them something for free as a as a as a as a sort of an, a reward, yeah, there's a lot of um, areas that we're looking at in Q2 to increase that. In general, like something like 35% of our uh, consumers are loyal. So we, we, we see them go through the, you know, converted, which is using it one time, loyal is, you know, one to 10, and then um, super loyals and um, advocates. So we are always measuring that kind of, that, that split. I don't know what the magic numbers are, uh, but, you know, more than 30% of our users are in the loyal category. So they're, you know, these are active. Every month they are using it between one and 10 times. So... That's a great indicator for us um, that if they keep enjoying it, they will tell more people and then those people will tell more people, etc. And that's how you grow, essentially, your brand. Um, let's move a little bit into the lessons learned, especially for early stage impact driven entrepreneurs listening to this. Um, uh, it feels to me for you, the initial starting point was really, you said, you know, like it's the single use plastics, we got to do something about them. And that was kind of the initial starting point to develop something, right? And I think this is how many uh, impact driven entrepreneurs think. Um, and uh, I, I know you talked about previously as well, like when you first started out, which been a few years ago now, was it 2015? 
that's when I coined the idea. But we started to operate in 2018. Got it. But still, it's a few years ago. It seems not not too long ago, but still, uh, the environment was quite different, right? So I think you were speaking about how you talk to people about the idea and people were just confused. Uh, whereas now, um, I mean, there's some sort of agreement, at least amongst the more forward thinking companies that, okay, we kind of shouldn't just continue plowing waste, uh, for, especially for single use, uh, single use waste. Yeah, then it was just totally new. Yeah. So how, how how did you have the confidence, first of all, that this is what's going to change? Um, and then from like, move from this idealistic perspective of this has got to change to building an actual business of solving customer problems and getting people to pay you to solve a problem for them. That's kind of the gap that I think impact entrepreneur, entrepreneurs always have to solve. So I'm keen to see how you solved it. Was it just being very patient or uh, how did you approach it? Yeah. I mean, you have, that's, that's a real, that's a really, that's a very good point. I mean, I was going to say grit, but I think that you, you have to have grit. You have to have a lot of self-motivation um, and patience because I, I know a lot of founders who I've come, you know, I've I've come into contact in the past who've said, you know, I, I tried this for a year and it didn't work, so I moved on. And some people do that. So some people are very, um, I guess, finite with how long they're going to give something. And that's hard because if if it's not about what our – if you're looking, you know, you're looking at the, uh, our journey in 2015, it wasn't the fact that we didn't, you know, team wasn't an issue, product wasn't an issue, market was. There's nothing you can do about market. So you cannot move a market. A market has to mature and build itself to a point where you have optimal opportunity. And there's nothing you can do. So if I ever gave myself a finite timeline in a situation where I am depending on the market, that's useless. That's that, you know, you can't, there's, there's, that doesn't make any sense. So for me, I had to just be patient. And it's, it's very frustrating, obviously, when you realize, oh, God, I'm so early to this game. And equally, to some degree, you know, even at this point, I'm like, okay, we're one of the pioneers. And, you know, there's so many copycats now, and so many, so much going on in the reuse space, which is fantastic, which is what you need, you need many, many players to, I guess, chime on the same same story so that you propel the market to move quicker in that direction um so i would say patience grit um i think if you've created an inner brief which you know requires to gain purpose in a certain way you are looking for different kinds of outcomes so my outcome isn't my purpose is not built around um, my objective is not about becoming a millionaire. My objective and my inner brief is about building products at scale that anybody can use. And of course, to get to that point implicates a lot, right? So it's like, well, you would have to raise a shit ton of money. You would also have to be in a position that you build a fantastic brand. Otherwise you're not good. So there are lots of implications and objectives within that stack. Um, and, for me, I just felt I just have to wait. I have to be patient. I have to allow the market to mature and 
by the time I'm ready to strike, I'll be in a much more powerful position because I have come from a space where I have had the opportunity to learn and build and um, prepare myself as opposed to desperately trying to wrangle and catch up and understand it whilst on the fly. So that's very different. So what's very unique about Club Zero to a lot of other companies in general is that we're not here struggling with like 10 developers trying to build some code. And we are not struggling here with uh, trying to work out how do we sell this product and to whom. We have incredibly mature um, aspects to the business. So across the engineering, across the physical product, across the sales approach, across it's very mature as a business. In, interestingly, although very small, we're full-time people, five. And so um, a team like that also doesn't require like a crazy amount of like round sizing either because we're not throwing money at the problem because we don't have a problem. We built it and it's been done incrementally and through understanding and change over a long period of time versus you know what typical startups do is like zero to six months and then six to 12 and then (laughs) another 12 months and hoping that you build basically in segments and then you want to try and feed it all together and you hope it's all going to work and it's utterly chaotic and and then you're constantly trying to throw money to just keep it going and and that's how that's how very very fast scale businesses work is you you compartmentalize and then you try and combine it whereas we've never had to compartmentalize we've actually had a very well integrated approach across all of our parts and they work very well so you you know there are pros and cons some people might say gosh for me this is a really long time i'm sure if you told me this is going to take you know five or seven years safia in the beginning i probably a wouldn't have believed it you know b would have laughed and c would have been like well i'm not doing that but uh we are where we are right you, you think you got the timing uh, right in some way, though? I, I can imagine if you started two or three years earlier, maybe, I don't know if you would be around, to be honest, uh, you know, just putting it out there. Uh, and if you started later, maybe all these all these people doing it as well would have would have been further along, right? Exactly. But I but I also, um, yeah, right place, right time. The people are a big indication. So you know if you if you were not attracting fantastic talent to your team along the way i would question if you were doing the right thing i think there you know giving yourself a finite time is very dangerous basically that's my my hopefully that's my main message is be really careful about that in impact specifically because um where you're looking at a specific market it's just it's a dangerous one so ask yourself to measure against other types of indicators. You know, we've just brought on someone who is ex-Tesla and ex-Impossible Foods and Rubicon as our chief commercial officer. And that's, a, that's one of our best key hires as um, as far as, you know, you can go for what we are doing. That's, you know, I can't see an example better than that um, in the marketplace. And so that's a huge indicator for me to say, okay, you're doing things the right way and the right pace with, with the right people and just more of the same. That's what you need. 
Got it. Um, uh, let's talk uh, briefly about the last two years. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, in, in your mind you've moved on from that a long time ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously the last two years in the pandemic, selling to customers that have been the most heavily hit by the pandemic. Um, I mean, I don't know how long you've had Just Eat as a, as a customer. Maybe that they were not as heavily hit or not hit well it in a good way. Um, but uh, tell us about the pandemic, how it impacted your business. And did you have like any near death moments or uh, how did you pull through? Yeah. Um, anybody in FNB has, um, I mean, it's mm -hmm. gone either way. If you were in the delivery or, or supermarket space, you did phenomenally well. And if you were kind of anywhere else, you really, you know, the, the, you really struggled. Now you might've struggled a bit, Uh, excruciating struggle or just quite, you know, a good level of struggle. So food and beverage, as we knew it, changed overnight. You know, everything closed, everything opened, everything closed, everything opened. <laughs> and you can imagine, I think actually the opening, closing, opening, closing is probably what killed a lot of the businesses as opposed to just closing um, because you can't sustain that kind of um, jump start, jump start and close and that that's a really really tough call because you don't know how to manage resources and that's both assets people time etc so from our perspective it was a huge blow because we had just launched in the u.s in palo alto and we did that off the back of um support from um consortium brands starbucks and mcdonald's And we had about a waiting list of about five major brands. Some of them flew down to visit us and the others slowly all canceled their flights and said, yeah, we don't, we can't get clearance or insurance and this is looking really bad and we don't think we're going to be able to come and see you. And then two weeks later, I had to shut down all operations and come back to London. So our US operation you know, launch pad February 2020 was basically put on deep freeze and we've actually just started it again now. So you can imagine um, that's two years, you know, lost in terms of growth opportunity, traction in the marketplace, and that's two years gone. So we, what we did was we, we I suppose, just focused our energies in, in London, we came back, we um, we had to do a number of things. First of all, we had an awful lot of um, uh, technical debt and we, we realized that this is probably a fantastic time to focus inwards. So let's completely look at our product. Let's look at Uh, what components of our engineering needs to be, you know, overhauled. We, you know, it's like a kind of like a, a maintenance process. We, we thought we have an opportunity where we're not going to be massively active. Um, and let's use this as a way of rebooting and, and creating a 2.0 version of Club Zero. And what, the, what does that look like? And that's also part of the reason why we rebranded because um, we were a cup club and we were looking at beverages and now we wanted to expand into food and sign a partnership deal with Just Eat. Um, and so that transition for us was, was amazing. It was actually very energetic. It was new briefs were on the table and we, we said, okay, well, we're going to change our new, you know, we're going to change our name. We're going to come up with a new brand. We're going to, um, 
get rid of our technical debt. We're going to have new product lines. We're going to completely like, you know, 2.0. And so we use that time, which is about 12 months or 14 months, to launch the, the results, all the work of that. And we basically started again, I would say, in Q4 2021. So six months in, really, into a more supercharged version of what what we were, because prior to that, our London operations were all related around offices. And so, you know, that was a that's a really hard hit sector because and it's the future of work has completely changed. We're now very distributed. We we work in offices, we work in cafes, we work at home, we work in members clubs, we you know, we work anywhere now actually. Uh, bus stops, whatever. I mean, wherever you find a laptop and somebody on Zoom, that's part of our culture. So so moving into delivery was a really big strategic plan. And now that part of the business is doing really well with Just Eat for Business. We have some of our strongest um, offices that are being um, served by some of our uh, strongest hosts. And that is going very nicely. And we launched into the consumer side and we're working on, um, we're working on basically more seamless UX for consumers across delivery platforms at the moment. So that's in the pipeline. And there's, there's a lot more, but I can't talk about it all. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some really exciting new brands that we'll be announcing later on in Q2, Q3. So, yeah, I, th- I think um, peak reuse is about two years away. Uh, wait, let me rephrase that. I think peak reuse is about five years away, but I think in two years you'll see, you know, it'll become very prominent as in, oh, I'm kind of seeing this in a lot of places. It's starting to feel quite normal. But peak, I think, is about five, five to seven years away, probably 2030. All right. Well, talk then for sure again. Uh, I, I think we could <laughs> we could definitely uh, ch- chat then again. Um, uh, I'd like to cover one more theme, uh, although uh, uh, just conscious of time as well. But um, I'd love to cover one more theme if if you're up for it, uh, which is basically uh, the the main theme for impact driven entrepreneurs, especially in the early days. I think we already talked a little bit about the focus on impact you know not wanting to compromise and really designing for uh in your case really the main environmental impact and reducing negative impact um uh which was really interesting to learn um and at the same time you always as a a impact driven entrepreneur you have to solve a market need you have to cater to the needs uh or uh, of, of your customers and you've talked uh, in preparing this uh, this uh, recording. You've talked about you know the challenge sometimes with customers having maybe a slightly different goal where, uh, in mind than you have. For example, you know seeing it as more of a PR initiative to partner with you, or uh, instead of actually trying to transition the operations of their business. Um, how do you deal with that if like the customer goals are? a bit misaligned with your goals, but there is some sort of overlap, right? The PR-focused company can still buy your products and use them and then use it to have a great PR initiative. How do you think about this and how do you get them into the right corner? So um, 
there's 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 always value in selling your product if it's creating impact. So the first the first thing that I would say is you don't need to like walk in the opposite direction from from brands that are clearly utilizing it for short term because even the short term has value. So it's not you're you know you're not there to judge them on whether they need to be short term or long term. We all know long term is obviously more sustainable, has more value and all of that. But, you know, for some brands, um, this is a very long kind of thing that they have to take themselves on a journey on. So for some, for some, it's about proving, um, you know, to their own organization that this might be something they want to do. And so they will take very small incremental steps, and they will make a big display of it. And then they will review it. And someone will hopefully in that organization say, this is great, why are we not doing this at a bigger scale? And so I would I would never sort of stop and say there are certain brands that are clearly, you know, only going to do this for, you know, for a small scale of time and use this as a PR stunt. So why would you work with them? I think I think if you're creating value, I think you've got something impactful. You should definitely work with any business that wants to work with you. So that's the first thing. Then uh long term it's, you know, we are in the business of creating FOMO. So if you have a great product and your customers are happy and you're, you know, uh, the, uh, they talk about you, you're only going to attract more of the same. So you're going to create more impact. You're going to be able to um, bring in some further fantastic brands. And so there is absolutely, you know, there's no lose-lose here um, in the grand scheme of things. As long as you're not deviating from your main core offer or product or impact itself and you're not you know uh, in, uh sort of um uh negotiating the actual core product down i don't think there's any major concern it's just some brands are very slow and they you know they they need to prove internally externally and that you know also consider that not every brand is a leader brand so some are very follower brands and they they they're a bit more risk of you know risk averse and so for them they're not the ones who will lead the market but they need somebody else to do that and then they'll come along so there are so many different types of customers out there and there's so many different motivations and i would just say if you're doing impact, you're bringing them value. As long as you can show them, you know what that looks like, and then it's up to them whether they take it up long term or not. That's you know that's just something that you have to work through. Got it. So what I get from that is really like being principle led with your product design. You know, making sure that you know now you wouldn't compromise if a customer comes to you and says, could you use a different, cheaper material that's not durable maybe, or but like cheaper for us in the end, or maybe not as uh, as sustainable as what you're using now. Um, I don't know, maybe that's an example or another example where they would try to push you to reducing your cost uh, while trading off the uh, sustainable impact, environmental impact, right? Yeah, I think it, I mean that's not your core product offer anyway. So you would you wouldn't have something for them. If somebody came to me and said, "Can you can you provide us this um entire system and um you know, uh 
reduce your, I don't know, reduce your service levels to something that was just never going to provide a great service to customers, I'd probably say, well, that's just, a, that's not a great system up there. And I, you know, I don't know how I would make this work within this particular budget. And that's, that's, you know, that's pretty fair. And so I think um, if they came to us to say, you know, we have our own product and our own packaging and we want to run it in your system, like that's brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we can work to that. And again, we can't, you, you, you know, every brand has its own journey and there are so many nuances along that journey. And I don't, we will never have time to understand every single brands you know entire sort of structure and how they internalize and how they work so if you if you if you land a fantastic brand and you see that opportunity as long as you're not creating an inferior product version of what you offer i think you should definitely drive it home last quick question is how does the world look like in 10 years if uh, club zero succeeds when uh, we are expanding across 20 cities in the next seven years and IPOing, you'd basically see a very seamless model for reuse across, you know, something like um, one between a thousand and two thousand locations per city where you can uh, pick up and drop off packaging. Um, and then within each city, we, we essentially have the capability to, of course, you know, operate that with our local partners on the ground. Um, you'd be able to provide or access that through the delivery platforms that are in that city. So, yeah, I mean, it's just normalizing this concept of reuse and, and building it at scale. Like I said, reuse has existed for a very long time. The only difference is that brands have initiated it on a very brand level, on a very product level. What we've just done is we've said, okay, we're initiating it at a city level and where multi-brands can plug and play. That's the main fundamental thing. And we've added technology as a way to manage that more efficiently. So it's it's just a case of delivering that in a in a way where it's visible to a customer. So it's a bit like Uber. You you know you just need one app, you can move from many cities and you find the same service in any city you go to. Amazing. Can't wait for this um, uh, vision of the, of the future. So um, thank you so much, Sophia, for making the time. I could have uh, gone much, much longer than this. Uh, really interesting. But uh, thank you so much and wishing you all the best for the next few years. Yes. Well, sign up, clubzero.co and let's go. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned some valuable lessons from today's guest. I want to share two things with you. First of all, if you're a founder and you're solving a social or an environmental problem with your company, there is something that we've launched recently to support founders like you and to introduce you to more founders that are like-minded and that are solving very difficult problems in the world. And that is the Impact Hustlers community. It is a community of over a hundred founders that uh, solve problems like climate change, education, the crisis in healthcare, and really pushing the boundaries on what's possible. And what we do as a community, we connect to each other, we run mastermind groups uh, where you 
can connect to other entrepreneurs and founders. We bring experienced investors, entrepreneurs, and experts in to run workshops and Ask Me Anything sessions. And you can also connect to others in our online community. Uh, and we have something for those of you that are actually fundraising. We have an investor matching tool where you get introduced to relevant investors based on the startup that you are building. But it may be the case that you're not a founder and you just want to be part of the change and you want to join some of these companies that you've learned about here at the Impact Hustlers podcast. And we've got something for you as well. We've recently launched the Impact Hustlers Talent Collective. This is a group of some of the most ambitious individuals in the world that want to make a change and an impact with their careers. And you can join the Talent Collective, obviously completely free of charge. You can apply to it. And we will introduce you on a regular basis to companies recruiting people like yourself. Uh, so you'll get access to exclusive job opportunities uh, from uh, companies that have been on the podcast, but also beyond that. So make sure that you go to impacthustlers.com slash jobs if you're looking for jobs in the social impact space. Even if you're not actively looking right now, you should still sign up and be part of our talent collective. And if you're a founder, don't forget, go to impacthustlers.com slash community. Okay, thanks very much uh, for listening and bye. See you at the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.